2 Corinthians chapter 2 is the scripture reading this morning. We read from God's Word, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We will be looking at the language in this chapter in detail in the second point of the sermon especially, so it will be profitable to keep our Bibles open to this passage. One notable thing about 2 Corinthians chapter 2 as well is that it speaks both about discipline and about preaching. And that's what we're looking at in the catechism this morning, Lord's Day 31, the keys of the kingdom. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the first half speaks about discipline and the second half speaks about preaching. Hear the word of the Lord. But I determined this with myself, that I would not come again to you in heaviness. For if I make you sorry, who is he then that maketh me glad, but the same which is made sorry by me? And I wrote this same unto you in his last letter in 1 Corinthians. He wrote strong words, lest when I came, I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote unto you with many tears, not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly done to you. But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. And that's one way to read verse 5, that I may not burden you all. Another way is, uh, if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in some measure. And in some measure, he has grieved all of you. So they're, they're, verse 5 is a little challenging to translate. Sufficient to say, uh, sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many. So that contrarywise, ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that ye would confirm your love toward him. For to this end also did I write that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I found not Titus, my brother, but, taking my leave of them, I went from thence into Macedonia. Now here especially, we're going to look at this language, verse 14 and following. Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of His knowledge, the knowledge of Him, by us in every place. He's talking about His preaching and, and who He is as a preacher. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ, in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death, unto death. And to the other the savor of life, unto life. 
And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. And so far we read God's holy and infallible word. We'll look at some of that language in the preaching, as I said. It's on the basis of this passage of Scripture and on the basis of many passages that we have the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism as it's found in Lord's Day 31. Page 18 in the back of the Psalter, Lord's Day 31. What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline or excommunication out of the Christian church. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is opened to believers and shut against unbelievers. How is the kingdom of heaven opened and shut by the preaching of the Holy Gospel? Thus, when according to the command of Christ, it is declared and publicly testified to all and every believer that whenever they receive the promise of the gospel by a true faith, all their sins are really forgiven them of God for the sake of Christ's merits. And on the contrary, when it is declared and testified to all unbelievers, and such as do not sincerely repent, that they stand exposed to the wrath of God and eternal condemnation, so long as they are unconverted, according to which testimony of the gospel God will judge them, both in this and in the life to come. How is the kingdom of heaven shut and opened by Christian discipline? Thus, when according to the command of Christ, those who under the name of Christians maintain doctrines or practices inconsistent therewith, and will not, after having been often brotherly admonished, renounce their errors and wicked course of life, are complained of to the church or to those who are thereunto appointed by the church. And if they despise their admonition, are by them forbidden the use of the sacraments, whereby they are excluded from the Christian church and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. And when they promise and show real amendment, are again received as members of Christ and his church. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we transition this morning from a study of the Lord's Supper to a study of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. We're going to take two sermons to look at this Lord's Day. And it's good for us at this point to remember what we are doing in the catechism and where we are right now in the catechism. We are in the second section of the catechism. We are looking at how Jesus delivers us from our sin and misery. And so far in this second section, we've looked at a few very important things. Everything's important, but we've looked, we can break it down a little bit. First, we've seen how Jesus is the qualified mediator who is able to die for the sins of his people and make the atoning sacrifice and satisfy God's justice. That was Lord's Days 5 and 6, way back then. Second, you looked at how Jesus also works within us a true and living faith, a living faith that believes the gospel 
as it's briefly summarized in the Apostles' Creed. Jesus doesn't just die for us on the cross, but Jesus also imparts to us a true and living faith that holds for truth all that God has revealed to us in the gospel. And that is confident that not only to others, but to me also is freely given remission of sin, eternal righteousness, and salvation by God merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. That's Lord's Day 7. Then the Catechism walked us through what this true faith actually believes. Lord's Days 28, or Lord's Days 8 through 22. And then the Catechism explained what the profit is of believing all these things that we believe. Lord's Lord's Days 23 and 24. What doth it profit thee that thou believest all this? Answer, I know I am righteous in Christ and an heir of eternal life. And that's where you looked at the doctrine of justification by faith. Justification by faith alone, without works. Then the Catechism explained where this true faith comes from. The Holy Spirit works this true faith in us by the preaching, and He confirms it in us by the use of the sacraments. And that's Lord's Days 25 through 30. And we just finished looking at the Lord's Supper. So in this section of the Catechism, we've been looking at how we are delivered from our sin and misery. Jesus dies for us on the cross, and He also imparts to us a true and living faith. We are about to begin a study of how we are to show our thankfulness. That's the rest of the Catechism. That's where we're going to look at daily conversion, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. But before we jump into that section, there's one more thing we need to study and deal with. And that's this. How does Jesus defend us and preserve us in that salvation He has given us? You see, we just finished looking at how Jesus works faith in our hearts and confirms faith and builds us up in the faith. But now the question goes a little further. How does Jesus defend us and protect us in that salvation He has given us? And that's where we come now to a discussion of the keys of the kingdom. I give before you this introduction, this outline, so that we can see right away from the beginning of our treatment that we need to see the keys of the kingdom as very comforting. And we should be very jealous over the proper use exercise of the keys of the kingdom. These keys of the kingdom are for the use of the defense of God's church. The keys of the kingdom are for the church's protection and well-being, to keep God's people in the church where they belong, and to bring in new converts who belong in the church, and also to keep out and to put out wolves and those who maintain doctrines or practices inconsistent with the gospel and the Christian faith. So right away, I want us all to have the proper view of the keys of the kingdom. They are there for our protection and our defense. They are part of how Jesus preserves us in this salvation He has given us. With that being said, we take as our theme this morning, the kingdom's keys. And we look at that theme under three points. First, the powerful keys, what they are and that they are powerful. Second, the proper use. And third, the real need. We're looking this morning at the keys of the kingdom. And one thing that's worth emphasizing is the fact that this language 
the keys of the kingdom is biblical language. I think that's worth pointing out because in our culture today, it almost sounds strange to the ear to talk about the keys of the kingdom. And I think that really shows the, uh, how illiterate people are in the Scriptures. This language sounds foreign to many, but this is language that Jesus Christ Himself uses, the keys of the kingdom. In Matthew 16, verse 19, Jesus says to Peter and to all the apostles and to the church, He says, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Two chapters later, Jesus uses the same language. Matthew 18, verse 18. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In Jesus' day, that language of the keys of the kingdom was familiar language. In the Old Testament, you come across the same language, the keys of the kingdom. There were kingdoms in those days with thick walls, high walls, and heavy gates. And there were keys that were used to open those gates to let people in, and to close those gates and lock those gates to keep people out. You come across this language in Revelation 3, verse 7. Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, the key of the kingdom, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and he that shutteth, and no man openeth. So this is the language that Scripture uses. The question comes, what does this language mean, the keys of the kingdom of heaven? Well, even the children know what keys are. Keys are tools we use to open and close doors and gates. And the key holder, the one who holds the key, can give access to some to let some in through the door or through the gate. And the key holder can refuse access to others to keep them outside. A key holder is one who determines the movement of people by the use of the keys. But now we speak of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So what is the kingdom of heaven? Well, we should be aware that there are fundamentally two kingdoms in this world. There's the kingdom of heaven and the other kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. Two spiritual kingdoms. And the keys regulate the movement between these two spiritual kingdoms. What are these two kingdoms? First of all, there's the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is the rule of God's grace through Jesus Christ, by His Word and Spirit, in the hearts of God's elect people so that they believe and obey the Word of the King. Let me repeat that, summarize that. The kingdom of heaven is God's rule of grace in the hearts and lives of His people so that Jesus sits on the throne in your heart and mine. The kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy. The kingdom of heaven comes not by observation, but the kingdom of heaven is within you. Jesus ruling on the throne in the heart because the kingdom of heaven is a spiritual kingdom. 
Now, having said that, we also need to say that here on earth, that kingdom comes to manifestation. It reveals itself. It shows itself in local instituted churches and in the lives of the members of those local instituted churches. Local instituted churches that bear the marks of the true church. Here on earth, the kingdom of God is found in the instituted church. That's where you find the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That's where you also will find the exercise of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Preaching and Christian discipline, which are the two keys of the kingdom, take place in and through the local instituted church. In fact, so closely tied together is the instituted church and the kingdom of God that it's only in the instituted church that the keys of the kingdom can be exercised. Preaching is done through the church. Discipline is done through the church. Through the local instituted church, Christ exercises the keys of the kingdom so that He opens the doors of the kingdom of heaven to some and He shuts those doors to others so that believers are on the inside and unbelievers are on the outside. Besides the kingdom of heaven, there is also the kingdom of darkness. And the kingdom of darkness is another spiritual kingdom. It's a kingdom of sin and death and misery and hell. The kingdom of darkness is the kingdom where Satan rules on the throne. And that's the kingdom that comes to manifestation in the wicked world we see all around us. A world of sin and godlessness and rebellion and total depravity. By nature, everyone belongs to the kingdom of darkness. By nature, everyone is born into that kingdom of darkness. That's where we all start. But by God's grace, God takes His elect people out of that kingdom of darkness and He translates them into the kingdom of heaven. Colossians 1 verse 13 puts it this way, God hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 puts it this way, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We've been translated out of the kingdom of darkness, brought into the kingdom of heaven. And He does that through regeneration. For except you are regenerated, ye cannot see and enter the kingdom of God. And what God does in regeneration is this. He changes us. By the sweet operations of His Holy Spirit, He changes us so that we are made into new creatures. The old man of sin is cast off the throne in our hearts, and Jesus establishes His rule of grace on the throne in our hearts. In our hearts. God infuses new qualities into the will. He breathes life into us so that we no longer walk under the control of the devil, but we walk under the rule of grace doesn't mean we don't still have a sinful nature. We do. But there's a change. So that we are no longer rebels, but we are penitent believers. We turn from sin. We embrace the promise of the gospel with a believing heart. We are saved, children of God. And being regenerated, we've been brought into the kingdom of heaven. And all of that is on the basis of Christ's redeeming death on the cross. On the cross, Christ purchased 
that eternal life for us, and He purchased membership in the kingdom of heaven for us. And then by regeneration, and by the work of the Holy Spirit, He imparts that blessing to us. So that's what the kingdom of heaven is. But now we need to remember what I already said, the kingdom of heaven manifests itself, it shows itself in the local instituted church. And that's where the keys of the kingdom are exercised. So what we can say and what we need to say is this. It is through the exercise of the keys of the kingdom of heaven by Christ through the local instituted church that unbelievers become believers and are brought into the kingdom in in a formal sense, we could say. That's especially done through the key of preaching. The preaching goes forth out of the local congregation. You are preaching this morning, congregation. It's not just the minister. It's the local instituted church that is preaching. And the preaching goes forth. And unbelievers hear the gospel. And by God's grace, they repent and believe and make confession of faith. And they are brought into the church, brought into the kingdom. It's through the use of the keys of the kingdom of heaven by Christ through the local instituted church that unbelievers are also kept outside the kingdom through the preaching. They hear the preaching. It doesn't appeal to their sinful nature and it drives them away. It's through the use of the keys of the kingdom of heaven by Christ through the local instituted church that believers are kept inside the kingdom through the preaching, through admonishments, through the means of grace through preaching and through discipline. And it's through the use of the keys of the kingdom of heaven by Christ through the local instituted church that unbelievers are put outside the kingdom of heaven through preaching and through discipline. So through the keys, the movement in and out of the kingdom is regulated. Some are brought in and others are put out. Some are kept in And others are kept out through the use of the keys. That's what they are as keys. And so what I want to emphasize still in this first point of the sermon is that these keys of the kingdom have real power. Spiritual power. Only spiritual power, but real spiritual power. I already quoted Matthew 16 verse 18. Let me read that again. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now to bind someone's sins upon someone is to fasten those sins to that person so that he is not forgiven those sins. They're bound to him. They still weigh him down. And to loosen someone's sins is to let those sins go from that person so that that person is forgiven. For another passage, listen to these words. This is Easter Sunday. I think it's Easter Sunday evening. Jesus has risen from the dead, and he's with his disciples in the upper room Sunday night. And we read, Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. And now this. Whosesoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. John 20, verse 23. 
What Jesus is doing is giving his church, through her office bearers, real spiritual authority. Now, the idea is not that the church has the ultimate authority. And now Jesus is in heaven and he simply has to follow what the church here on earth does. That's not the case. No, Jesus is the one who holds the keys. He's the king of the kingdom. He has the absolute authority over the keys. But Jesus works in and through his church and through the office bearers, his servants, and through the preaching so that what the church does, she does on behalf of the king. It's what the king is doing through her. When the church preaches the gospel and receives a member from outside the church into her fellowship as a believer, that's Jesus working and that's Jesus receiving that member to himself through the church. It's ultimately Christ who causes the preaching to go forth and it's Christ who applies that preaching to the hearts of his elect people and brings them to bow before his word. And when the church institute, through her office bearers, deliberates and makes decisions based on Scripture, when her work is done faithfully and true to God's Word, then Jesus Christ Himself will own those decisions as His own decisions. It's ultimately Christ who puts someone outside the kingdom. And it's Christ who uses discipline also to keep His people inside the kingdom. So what we can say is this. The church has declarative power. The church cannot say, I forgive your sins. The church does not have the power to forgive sins in that sense. But the church can say, your sins are forgiven. And the church can also say, your sins are not forgiven. On the basis of the gospel, on the basis of God's word, the church in the preaching says to the believer, believer, Penitent believer, your sins are forgiven. And on the basis of the gospel, on the basis of God's word, the church in the preaching and in discipline can say to the impenitent man, impenitent man, you are outside the kingdom of heaven. That sounds strong. That's very strong. But that's the way it is. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. The church, is not, the church is not killing anyone. The church is simply declaring what it sees. Know ye not, Jesus says. The Apostle Paul writes this, but know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And the church declares to the fornicator, and to the idolater, and to the thief, and to the, the, the covetous, the one walking impenitently in his sin. The church declares... You are not a member of the kingdom of heaven. The Lord's Supper emphasizes the same thing. We admonish all those who are defiled with the following sins to keep themselves from the table of the Lord and declare to them that they have no part in the kingdom of Christ so long as they remain unconverted. 
That's the word that the church can speak on behalf of Christ. That's how Jesus Christ himself operates through the church and rules here on earth. Now, all of that makes the work of the church through her office bearers a very holy and reverent thing. Perhaps the elders even this morning are unsettled at how high and holy this calling is. The Apostle Paul himself says it in the passage we read, verse 16, Who is sufficient for these things? That the Lord use us for these kinds of things. All of this impresses upon us the important work of the preaching and the important work of discipline. No pastor, no elder may ever use the keys of the kingdom independently of Jesus Christ or contrary to the will of Jesus Christ. That's rebellion. That's corruption. And Jesus will not bless that. And Jesus only honors the work of faithful office bearers. At the same time, that also means that the declarations of the church are declarations not to be taken lightly. Because the reality is, Christ will not say one thing through His faithful church here on earth, and then on the last day, the day of judgment, say something entirely different. He won't. Christ upholds the work of His church and faithful servants. That's a brief look at the powerful keys of the kingdom. They bring into the church, they keep in the church, they put out of the church, and they keep out of the church. They bring into the kingdom, they put out of the kingdom. Preaching and discipline. Now getting a little bit more specific, we should look at the proper use of the keys. Moving on, I want to explore 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and see the language there and how all this works and fits. I want to start off by looking at the preaching. Let me read 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14, 15, and 16. Here, the Apostle Paul is reflecting on his work as a preacher and uh, others who are preachers. He says, verse 14, Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us, preachers, to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of His knowledge, the knowledge of Him, by us, preachers, in every place. For we, preachers, are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one, we, preachers, through the preaching, are the savor of death unto death, and to the other, the savor of life unto life. And then he says, and who is sufficient for these things? And the word savor there means smell, a sweet savor, or a savor of a smell of life unto life, and a smell of death unto death. So in this passage, the apostle is using a very striking figure. Even the children can understand this. We might not be familiar with this figure. Paul uses the figure of a victorious Roman general who is leading his army in a triumphal parade procession through the capital of the empire. And he compares the Christian preacher to a participant in the parade. So, th this was common in Paul's day. These kinds of per parades or processions were common. A Roman general, a captain, would defeat a barbarian horde, and he would celebrate his victory with the big parade going through the city, whether it be Rome or another major city in the Roman Empire. 
And what the Roman general would do was parade the prisoners of war through the streets to show them off to all the spectators. And as he was doing that, people, certain participants, would burn spices and such so that sweet fragrances wafted through the air of the city. And then at the conclusion of the parade, those prisoners of war, those barbarians, would usually be executed as a tribute to the conqueror or or to the emperor, whatever it may be. And so for the victors, that fragrance that was burning in the street was a sweet smell to their nostrils. It was the smell of victory, another victory over the enemy. But for the captives, the prisoners of war, that fragrance, that same fragrance, was a smell of death that was telling them about their impending death. So there were sweet-smelling fragrances, a, a sweet savor, but it received two very different responses. To the captives, it told them of their impending death, and to the victors, it told them of their triumphant victory. And now here in 2 Corinthians 2, the Apostle Paul uses that figure and he compares it to what happens in the preaching because it's very similar in the preaching. Paul says in verse 14 that God always causes His preachers to triumph in Christ. The idea is God's preachers are always marching in that victory parade. As it were, with Christ, their general, the captain of their salvation, at the head of the parade. And as the preachers march in that victory parade through the city, they are the ones burning the spices. Through the preaching of the word, God's servants cause the sweet smell of the gospel to waft through the cities of the Roman Empire. As they preach, that gospel preaching is a sweet savor a pleasing smell in the nostrils. In verse 15, Paul says, For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ. The preaching is a sweet savor in God's nostrils because in the preaching, Christ is set forth. And all that He is and all that He is, a sweet savor, verse 15 says, a sweet savor of Christ. The smell of Christ goes forth in the preaching. And that's the sweet fragrance that fills the air. That's the content of the preaching. And then the call of the gospel is this. Repent and believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And the point here in verse 15 is this. Christ is pleasing to God. And the preaching of Jesus Christ is always pleasing to God. Whether it has its effect of saving an individual or whether it has its effect of hardening an individual, the preaching is always a sweet savor unto God, a sweet savor of Christ. But then Paul says in verse 16, to the one, we are the savor of death unto death. That is, to the unbeliever, to the impenitent, the preaching conveys to them the smell of death. It still smells beautiful, But to them, it's the smell of death that leads to death. To the ones who are perishing, it's the smell of death that leads them further to death. They hear the preaching. And what does the preaching say? The preaching says, He that believeth not is condemned already 
because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. To the unbeliever, the preaching says, you reject Jesus Christ. You see no need for a Savior. You are righteous in yourselves. And for all your sins, you offer an excuse for yourself. You are not sorry for your sins. You stand exposed to the wrath of God and eternal condemnation so long as you remain unconverted. And the unbeliever hears that preaching and it tells him of his death and it confirms to him his death and his impending death in hell if he refuses to turn from his sin and believe the gospel. It's the smell of death to him that leads to death. They are in the process of perishing. And then in verse 16, Paul goes on to say, and to the other, a savor of life unto life. That is, to the believer, to the child of God, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ conveys to them the smell of life. Because in the preaching, he hears this. Believer, penitent believer, which is what believers are, penitent. Believer, your sins are are forgiven. In the preaching, he hears this. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. You, you who have turned in faith to Jesus Christ, all your sins have been washed away through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You who humble and loathe yourself before God and seek your righteousness only in Jesus Christ, you have peace with God, your Maker. Not because of your seeking, not because of your faith, but because of Christ's merits, which are freely given to you by God through the instrument of faith. And the believer hears that preaching. He says, that's who I am. And the believer hears how the preaching tells him of his salvation. It tells him, you do have a share in Jesus Christ. And you have eternal life freely given you for Christ's sake. And he rejoices and she rejoices in the triumphant victory that he and she have in Jesus Christ. And the preaching is the smell of life that leads to life. More life. More abundant life. They are saved and they are being saved as they continue through this earthly life. And for the unbeliever and believer, Jesus the King uses the preaching to accomplish his purposes, saving some and hardening others, bringing some into the kingdom of God through the hearing of the gospel, and even driving others outside of the church, outside that kingdom, through the very same hearing of the pure gospel. And for us who are believers, every week again we hear the gospel. You hear the preaching of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Your sins are forgiven. He broke His body and He shed His blood for you who call upon His name. You shall be saved. Your sins are washed away. And our hearts are comforted. Our faith is strengthened. And we are built up in our Christian identity and our Christian walk. We are admonished. And by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we receive those admonishments and we turn from sin and to Christ and learn to walk more and more in the path of obedience. And in all these things, the preaching is a key. It's keeping us in where we, by our sinful natures, would, would try to go out. It drives others out who don't belong. It brings others in who need to be brought into the kingdom 
and it keeps others out. And in all these things, the church is protected and defended. God's people are kept safely behind those fortified walls and those strong gates. And the enemy is kept out on the other side of those walls and gates. That's, that's the keys. And that's the preaching. The preaching does that. What is striking is that here in this very same chapter, the apostle also speaks of discipline, the other key of the kingdom. And that's the first half of the chapter. In the first half of the chapter, the apostle makes reference to the man who was put under discipline and who was excommunicated out of the church. You read of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Lord willing, we will look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 next time, and we'll look at the work of discipline and how the church in Corinth dealt with a man who was walking in sin. Now here in his second letter to the Corinthians, he picks up what they did. Paul, in the first letter, Paul sharply rebukes the church for tolerating this sin. Paul says, remember 1 Corinthians 5, it's like leaven, and it's going to have its devastating effect on the whole church if you don't handle this properly. Remember, they were all proud. They said, we can, we can tolerate this man who's, who's committing incest with his father's wife because we know better. We're spiritually mature. And Paul says, this is going to destroy the church if you don't handle it properly. You need to put the man out of your midst. Deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't have fellowship with such a man. No, not even to eat with him. Put him out of your communion. That's what he says to them in the first letter. That's the key of discipline. And what do we read as we turn now to the second letter? Here in this first part of chapter 2, we read that this man was excommunicated. The congregation did deal with him faithfully like they were called to deal with him. They put him out. And not only did the elders do this formally, but all the members did it practically in their day-to-day lives. They had no more dealings with the man. And that was a punishment they inflicted upon him. They delivered him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And the Lord used that for this man's salvation. The congregation sorrowed over the sin. The congregation was careful by the Holy Spirit's working in them. They were careful to make an urgent, radical change in how they were behaving with this man. And the Lord used that to bring this man to his senses. He had no more supporters in his sin. He was left alone. And the Lord used that mightily, that faithful exercise of the key to work true repentance in the man and in the whole congregation. We read that the man himself made a full confession. He was angry towards himself. He had a positive urgency to be holy. He took vengeance on his sin. The whole congregation did. And the man was an entirely different person than what he was before. You didn't recognize him. He was a changed man. So much so that we read in this chapter, in verse 7, that Paul had to tell the congregation You dealt faithfully with that man. Now seeing that he has repented, you need to forgive him. And you even need to comfort him, lest such a man, a truly penitent man, be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. And that's how the Lord used discipline in the church at Corinth to put a man out of the kingdom and then in the way of repentance, bring him back into the kingdom. When the keys are properly handled, 
when the preaching and the church's discipline work is faithfully carried out, God is honored. Christ the King is honored. And He is pleased to work through that. That's Him working through that faithful exercise. The church is protected. His bride is protected. And sinners are saved. And in all these things, we see the proper use of the keys of the kingdom and how preaching and discipline function as keys. Like I said, Lord willing, we'll look at discipline a little bit more next time looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. What I want to end with this morning is the real need. To impress upon us, we have a real need for these keys of the kingdom. You see, many would say, we only have to love. Just, just love. Don't, don't judge others. Just, just forgive and forget. Regardless of whether they are repentant or not. Just forgive and forget. We're not going to judge others. No, congregation, this, this is love. This is Christ's love for His church, that He gives faithful preaching and He gives that proper exercise of Christian discipline. Because you see, the world wants to get inside the church. The world is banging on the gates of the church as hard as she can. One way or another, she wants to get in. Your own sinful nature is banging on the gate My sinful nature wants to be in control of the church to do what I want it to do. Satan is engaged in a death battle against the kingdom of heaven. And if he can get through the gates, and if your and my sinful nature can get through the gates and take over the pulpit and take over the keys of the kingdom, well, then Satan has the fortress. And he's got the victory. No, God uses the keys to protect his people, to keep his people safe. Keep that gate open where it needs to be open. Let people in. Shut that gate to keep out those who don't belong. In fact, it's very striking when you think about it that these two keys of the kingdom are not just the keys of the kingdom. They're also two of the three marks of the true church. These are the marks of where the kingdom really is. Preaching, proper preaching, faithful discipline. Let us be jealous over the keys of the kingdom and the faithful exercise of those keys. Never without love, always with love. For without love, all the work is nothing. But in love, love for God, love for each other, for the glory of God, let us be jealous to know what that love looks like, to be careful with what that love looks like. And let us be careful in our use of the keys of the kingdom, jealous over it. Let me add a closing word here. Congregation, be thankful for your elders. Be thankful for your elders and pray for them. Who is sufficient for such a thing? Are you sufficient for such a thing? Am I? It's only by Christ's spirit and grace that these things can be done. Pray for your elders and be thankful for them. I know I'm the minister. It might sound one-sided coming from me, but I'm also, I'm also privileged to come in and, and see the elders with getting to know them. Your elders are doing a tremendous amount of work. Your elders are doing faithful work. And I praise the Lord and thank the Lord that accepting this call, I didn't know, but I'm thankful for the elders that the Lord has given in this church, given me, to watch over me and, and to work together because we're, we're focused on this, the faithful exercise 
of the keys of the kingdom. Your elders truly care for your souls and want to do what's right. And, and the Lord hears and answers prayer. He is leading us. We can be confident of that. The work of the elders is often thankless work. It's easy to criticize. It's easy to put elders in a bad light, especially when there are confidential matters that only they are privy to. The elders know the weight that's on their shoulders. And the elders, again, like Paul, declare who is sufficient for these things. They're watching over your souls as those that must have to give an account. Pray for them. I beseech you as your pastor, pray for them that God may indeed give them the mind of Christ in all their work. And though they are but weak means, even that too, the Lord uses that so that the glory goes to Him. Jesus will use them. He has been using them. Our own presence in this church, our own enjoyment of protection and safety is a witness that the Lord is using the keys of the kingdom. And Jesus Christ will use those whom He has called to this office for His glory and the safety of the members of His precious church, His kingdom, His people, His bride. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank Thee that Thou dost by Thy Spirit show us Thy truth so that we cannot help but bow before it and thank Thee for it. We thank Thee for all the care that Thou dost bestow upon us, defending us and preserving us in that gracious salvation that Thou hast given to us in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray for this church that we might have the faithful exercise of the keys. We pray for the pastor. We pray for us that we might be faithful in the preaching. We pray for the elders and we pray for us as we exercise Christian discipline. Help us, O Lord, and show us thy mercy and cause us to see Jesus in our midst. And may that make our hearts joyful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.